1: One question I run into repeatedly is this. Does the Bible teach a regulative principle of government, or RPG? Now, I believe the answer is a very strong yes, and I mean to prove it here by the use of three biblical arguments. Before I do, though, it is wise to define our terms. For the purposes of this work, my definition of the regulative principle of government is this. Governments are not free to make it up as they go. They are required to stay within the confines of the requirements of the law of God. Though all lack of conformity to the law of God is sin, not all sin is considered in that law to be a public crime worthy of punitive or regulative action by the civil government. The law of God distinguishes between sins and crimes. The way to tell the difference is that crimes come with specified punishments. Covetousness, for instance, is outlawed as a sin, but since the law never specifies an earthly penalty for it, covetousness is not to be considered a crime, and therefore not under the jurisdiction of a human government. Theft, on the other hand, is a sin that comes with specified penalties, particularly the payment of restitution. It is therefore a crime that the civil government needs to address. Now, this regulative principle does not mean that all our law codes should be replaced with the Ten Commandments and literal stoning, necessarily. It means that our governments are not allowed to define crimes or types of crimes that the law has not defined. So, for instance, smoking the leaves of a plant may be sinful insofar as it destroys sobriety, but it is not a crime. No punishment is specified. On the other hand, the law of God treats the unborn child as a person worthy of equal legal protection with everyone else. So the regulative principle of government would seek to shut down any human laws that do away with that legal protection. Basically, the the RPG means that governments are not allowed to turn to either the left or the right from God's commandments, as we will see in just a moment. Here, then, are three positive arguments to establish the case. They are, first, that the RPG is the explicit teaching of Scripture. Second, that the burden of biblical prophecy spreads the RPG to all the world. And third, that there can be no actual justice if this regulative principle is denied. So the first argument is that we're talking about the explicit teaching of Scripture. Deuteronomy 17:18 18, 18 through 20 says, When he takes the throne of his kingdom, talking about the king in Israel, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. Note the requirements here are bracketed by statements that concern the actual activity of being the king. This is not talking about him having a copy of the law to read during his morning devotions. It concerns the business of ruling as king. He begins the copying and studying when he ascends to the throne. And if he is faithful to it, it will ensure the prosperity of his house as the royal family in Israel. Now this text lists three mandatory requirements vis-a-vis his relationship to the law. First, he must copy it out. Writing activates different areas of the brain in addition to merely reading or studying. So God apparently wants this to sink deeply into his consciousness. Second requirement is says it, it says he must keep it with him. You do that with stuff that you consider valuable. Keys, wallet, cell phone, children. And third, he must read it continuously all his life. He doesn't get to claim that after writing it out and maybe reading it one more time, he's got it. He's not done. He'll never be done. He will be a lifelong disciple in God's principles of justice. Now, there are three mandatory outcomes of keeping the above requirements that are listed in this text. The first one is the king will learn to revere or honor the Lord. He'll see himself rightly in relationship to God. The second one is he will actually do what the law commands. That is, his lifetime of study must result in action. And the last result is, he will not exalt himself above his brethren, as is the want of powerful people. Another thing to note is that one surefire sign that he has failed in all of this is this. He turns from the law to the right or to the left, in the direction of leniency or severity, in the direction of apathy toward actual crime or toward overbearing activism. He can't become the conservative's favorite father figure in a uniform or the liberal's mother in an apron. From all the above, it is explicitly clear that the king's job is to demonstrate consistent, meticulous, unswerving obedience to the details of the law God has given him to enforce. Any other option represents a sinful turning aside from it. But there's an objection. (laughs) But preacher... That was the Old Covenant, made specifically with Israel. Our rulers are not in the same position as the kings in ancient Israel, as we are not part of that covenant. Which brings us to the second argument. We've seen that the king of Israel was strongly saddled with a regulative principle of government. Now we will look at the fact that the spread of this principle to the ends of the earth is the burden of prophecy. Simply put, what I mean is this, it is the consistent testimony of both testaments that God intends the law to instruct all the nations of the world in righteousness. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 5 through 8 says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Note there that Moses does not express this desire in language of potential or wishful thinking. He's not saying that it could work this way. He says it will. In fact, hundreds of years later, we see this actually happening as kings and queens of the earth, such as the Queen of Sheba and Hiram of Tyre, bestow lavish gifts upon King Solomon in deference to his apparently worldwide reputation as a teacher of God's wisdom. But we must consider this merely a provisional fulfillment of what Moses saw prophetically. We know this because after Solomon had been gathered to his fathers, the prophet Isaiah expands on Moses as the noonday sun expands the first light of dawn. After Solomon has fallen silent, Isaiah foresees this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That was Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Now, since I'm not a dispensationalist, I feel no compulsion to take the phrase in the last days as something like at the end of time. Rather, that phrase consistently has reference to the days of the Messiah's reign. The New Testament writers affirmed, for instance, that Christ has appeared in these last days, etc. So what Moses said in a succinct, almost matter-of-fact fashion, Isaiah says in the most exalted language, fitting for the glory of what he is led to envision. Not merely God's law going out to instruct the nations, but the nations eagerly longing for it. Not merely some meager ethical instruction taking place, but that instruction actually taking hold and bringing geopolitical transformation to the glory of God. When we move to the New Testament, we find that Jesus is on board with this vision, which should shock no one but modern evangelicals who have convinced themselves that godliness is inversely proportional to obedience. As Dr. Bonson pointed out so forcefully decades ago, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 teach the abiding validity of the law of God and all its details, even to the end of the world. But then we also have the Messiah commanding that the law word of God should go out to instruct all the nations, to turn the nations as nations into disciples. In the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28 one other text I'll mention briefly just to have a second New Testament witness as though the Lord Jesus needed someone to corroborate his testimony. In 1 Timothy Paul is providing advice and instruction to Timothy who's been left as an elder and shepherd of the church in Ephesus. Now Ephesus shows up in the dictionary at the entry for pagan. And here in this thoroughly gentile idol-soaked setting Paul tells Timothy that the law of God has a continued new covenant use, a use that is good. Its use is in that place as an instructor on the topic of sin and righteousness. It is still valid for use as a standard for ethical judicial evaluation of the world around us. This is all found in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. To sum up this point, if the objection above was that yes, the king of Israel was supposed to be concerned with detailed obedience to the law as part of his governing duties, but none of us are part of that same covenant, and therefore the requirements of God upon our governments cannot be the same. Then the answer to that objection is the consistent witness, the prophetic testimony of both testaments, and not for nothing, the Lord Jesus himself. All nations are to be taught the same sort of obedience, to the explicit commands of God. Now we have to progress to a third consideration here. We've seen that the regulative principle of government was explicitly commanded to the kings of Israel. We've now seen that the Bible's consistent vision is a world that has been instructed to follow those same commands. But as as astonishing as it is to me personally, there are those who have seen all these things to themselves and having considered them persist in rejecting them. I am speaking of those now who reject the regulative principle of government in favor of some theory which says that governments in the New Covenant era have no particular obligation to the law of God and are instead free to muddle along like blind men groping around in an unfamiliar room. They will still be held accountable for how they how well they do at establishing justice and public equity But they are free to figure this out on their own, as they will, either by some appeal to so-called natural law, or a simple non-philosophical exercise in trial and error. So the last of our three arguments for the regulative principle of government is therefore meant to confront all such notions. The argument is this, the inescapable injustice in affirming the contrary the inescapable injustice in affirming the contrary. I mean that wording to be reminiscent, reminiscent of Dr. Bonson's famous answer to the question, how do you know that the Bible is the word of God? His reply? Because of the impossibility of the contrary. If I can briefly exposit him here, he was talking about the fact that he believed that the existence of God and the reliability of his word were the necessary preconditions, the presuppositional foundations for all rational thought, logic, and discourse. If one of those preconditions, the truth of the Bible in this case, is not ultimately true, then all things are inevitably, irretrievably thrown into chaos and madness. He believed the Bible was true because it must be. In the same way, then, that you can have no solid grounds for believing in reason and logic apart from the God of the Bible, so too here. Apart from the standard of the law, word of God, there can be no justice, no rational standard for establishing right and wrong. Hebrews 2.2 affirms, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mind you, that all of the punishments specified in the law of God are just. They are neither too soft nor too unyielding. They are not uninformed, unenlightened, or barbaric. The New Testament calls them just. Elsewhere the, el- elsewhere, the rest of the New Testament refers to the whole law of God as holy and perfect. So when we propose that governments are free to stumble along and try to figure it out for themselves, what we are actually affirming is twofold. One, we are saying that it's now acceptable for governments to operate with small or great amounts of injustice. And two, inescapably, we are saying that God is not all that concerned with public righteousness or with establishing justice in the gates, even though he apparently used to be. To deviate from the law of God is to deviate from justice. This seems elementary. Indeed, it should be, at least for our Reformed brothers whose own confessions are riddled with statements like this one. Question, what is sin? Answer, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, question number 14. Any want of conformity. That's the old English way of saying, anywhere there's daylight between you and the law of God, you're in sin. The law is not wrong, you are. For a confessing Presbyterian especially, who supposedly subscribes to Westminster, for such a believer to say he thinks human governments are not required to conform to the law of God, is as much as saying, I think governments are allowed to sin. In fact, that's how it's been designed to work. To reject the RPG is to say that you think man-made laws are preferable to God's law. Give us autonomy, self-law, and not theonomy, God's law. As all the leading lights of Christian Reconstruction have consistently affirmed, there is no neutrality, there is no parcel of land on the planet that the reigning Son of God has not included inside His boundary markers. Think twice, Christian, before you affirm the rightness of moving those ancient landmarks. The rejection of RPG is the rejection of public justice. There is no third option. In conclusion, to sum up, we have defined the regulative principle of government as the concept that human government must stay strictly within the boundaries of the law of God. This is not to suggest that Moses must be cut and pasted into the Federal Register. It means that we are not free to create crimes or invent new legalities. We are not free to outlaw things that the law of God does not outlaw. But we certainly can and must figure out how to apply the principles that are in those laws to modern circumstances and changing technologies. Internet fraud would still be punished as a form of theft, for instance, and thus require the payment of restitution. Now, we have seen three arguments for requiring civil governments to adhere to the RPG. First, the principle was elucidated in a straightforward manner to the kings of Israel. Second, the Bible consistently anticipates a time when all the kingdoms of the world are also taught a similar obedience. And third, we've shown that the only option to the RPG is anything goes. Once we we release the kings from their duty to obey God's law... The inescapable consequences are tyranny and lawlessness, as both human history and God's revelation clearly teach.
0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit Reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.
1: And we're back, setting the record straight. Thank you for joining us. We just spent a little while talking about the regulative principle of government. And there's one last thing I want to say about that before we move on. And that is, if you understand this principle, then one of the results of that is that you understand that when the law, when the law of God is silent about a particular human activity, that's on purpose. It's not silent as an oversight. It, it doesn't represent a gray area. Uh, The silence of the law is not an invitation for man to do his best to come up with something workable as a solution. Silence in the law of God has a positive meaning. If there is an activity that is not defined as either sinful or criminal in the law, then that activity is neither sinful nor criminal. To outlaw it anyway is not some legitimate exercise of freedom or government prerogative. It is positively transgressing God's command, sinful on its own. Now I'll turn to a different topic. It's one that's certainly connected insofar as God's law addresses it, but I want to talk for a moment about the current immigration debate raging among Christians and specifically about whether or how or to what extent it is lawful in the sight of God for a nation to close its borders to immigrants. I've been involved in some of these debates, though not a lot, and I confess that I have sinfully lost my cool on rare occasion. The reason I've lost my cool is because I am presently working to try to get a Christian brother from Cameroon to safety to find some refuge from the genocide taking place there for him and his family. I confess that our dealings with US immigration control have been of the sort to sour me on the whole topic, and my concern for my brothers and sisters has gotten the better of my emotions at times. So, cards on the table. I am on the side of what has been called open borders, although, like some others at Reconstructionist Radio, I am in favor of allowing for a quarantine of potentially sick migrants. I don't have much problem with the idea of a very fast, cursory criminal vetting, especially in an era of instant background checks. I oppose, though, any burdensome delay of those who desire to come in, without proof that they are criminal. I don't think immigrants should receive any taxpayer-funded assistance, But I also don't think any American should, either. And I don't think that staving off the inevitable collapse of the welfare state is a legitimate reason for keeping out travelers or asylum seekers. Okay, so these are all things that are argued about, and I'm sure I'm not going to put an end to any of that. But one point that I'd like to make here is one concerning the types of arguments that are being used by Christians on both sides. I mean no insult in any of this, but I do think the point is worth noting. The arguments on the two sides, closed borders versus open borders, are not biblically symmetrical. And I mean that at a fundamental level where we talk about hermeneutics and exegesis in our Bible study, these two sides are not making the same kinds of arguments. Basically, if you had a Bible Study 101 type of class or book or lecture series where the aim is to teach new Bible readers some guidelines about how to study the word for themselves, one of the basic concepts you'd go into is the difference between what we call imperative and indicative statements. We're prescriptive versus descriptive, narrative portions of the Bible versus explicit commands, that sort of thing, symbolism versus plain-spoken instruction. This is basic stuff, with the whole point being that we should all be careful about deriving moral oughts or ought-tos from descriptions of what is or was. The fact that a good guy in the Bible performs action A, for instance, does not automatically mean that action A was righteous or that it should be imitated. Jesus being the one exception, as his actions were in fact always righteous and worthy of imitation. On the other hand, if you read about a bad character performing action B, that doesn't necessarily mean that action B is always wrong. It may be, of course, but the narrative by itself can't give you enough information to determine that. So if we're going to bind someone else's conscience by telling them to avoid a certain activity as sinful, I think we really need to have some... Uh, something more than a narrative or an inference taken from a narrative what you need ideally is an explicit command I know I'm rehearsing basic ground here but I think these ideas are in danger of being lost in some folks you should especially be wary of moral applications that arise from narratives or narrative features that have nothing directly to do with the moral topic at hand Peter and his friends left their fishing boats to follow Jesus. Therefore, sailing on the water must be sinful. That can't be how we build a Christian system of ethics or judgment. Hopefully there's nothing controversial about this. So the observation I want to share with you humbly about our immigration debates is this. When I have been presented with biblical arguments for governmental border control, I have found them to be, almost without exception, arguments that draw inferences, sometimes quite obliquely, from narrative portions of scripture. I'm not yet arguing that all those inferences are wrong, I'm simply pointing out what type of arguments they are. This type of argument can be correct or it can be false. But it can never be correct when the inference drawn from a narrative is in conflict with an explicit statement of moral command on the topic. Now, by contrast, I think the arguments made by the open border side generally rest on those very sorts of explicit statements of moral command. Repeated commands in the law, for instance, in which Israel was instructed to welcome the stranger and even treat him like a brother. It is much easier and much safer to attempt to apply an actual command to varied modern circumstances. I think especially of the law of the runaway slave seeking asylum, found at Deuteronomy 23, verse 15 and 16. It wasn't merely that he was to be welcomed into the land, but it was illegal to deport him back to where he came from. And it specifies that he must be allowed to live in Israel wherever seems good to him. At some point, it's true, both sides are stuck making some inferences as they struggle to make modern applications. One side is inferring applications from imperative, prescriptive statements written in plain language. The other side is drawing inferences from narratives, and frankly, narratives that are not even tangentially related to immigration. In addition, the open borders theonomists draw upon the regulative principle we discussed earlier, wherein the absence of any command or allowance in the law of God for restricting immigration cannot be seen as an oversight or a neutral thing, but actually represents a positive instruction to the government not to go there. In the time I have left here, which, to be honest, is determined by me I want to look at a couple of the major instances that we see repeatedly from closed borders folks in which inferences are drawn from narratives that are not about immigration. First it is very common for closed borders people to appeal to the consequences of the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11 and then to marry that to statements about the fact that God determined the geographical limits of the nations. Appeal is routinely made to Paul's speech in Acts 17.26, where he teaches that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, we note that neither Paul's narration nor the one in Genesis has anything to do with immigration. Nevertheless, inferences are then drawn from this. Some, like Michael Fallon, have taken from this that nations are quintessentially defined by their borders. To the extent that no nation can be said to maintain its own national sovereignty apart from governmental border control. No No closed borders means no nation. This conclusion is an unwarranted inference, an invalid inference, and we can know this to be true by the fact that Israel existed as a sovereign nation under God for a couple of generations under Moses and then under Joshua, with either non-existent borders in the former case or ill-defined borders, borders that were in constant flux due to warfare in the latter case. The Bible does not teach that a nation is defined by its borders. Rather, as Rushduni repeatedly taught, every collective human group is fundamentally defined by theology, by covenant. This is how Israel could be a nation without a homeland while it wandered for 40 years. Now many of my listeners may also be familiar with the name Alan Miracle, who blogs under the pen name Rology. In his essay, A Biblical Case Against Open Borders, which you can find at steamit.com, Miracle's lead batter up to the plate is this same reference to Babel and Paul's recounting in Acts 17. But to Miracle's credit, he is a bit more modest in the inference he draws than is Fallon. Miracle's theory is that borders around nations is part and parcel of God's judgment upon the tower-building project. He suggests that keeping nations separate from each other is a sort of prophylactic, uh, my term there, a prophylactic against any future one-world government projects. Properly maintained borders are, for him, a de facto limitation on international cooperation, which is a good thing, which will keep the globalists from having another go of it. There are a couple of weaknesses, at least with this theory. One is that it relies for its urgency upon a dubious eschatology that would have us constantly on the lookout for the rise of a globalist antichrist, and therefore always skeptical of increasing harmony among the nations. But the issue that should stick out like a red flag flag to us is that neither Paul's narration nor the Babel incident in Genesis make the connection between borders and restricting movements of individuals desiring to travel. In fact, the Tower of Babel incident doesn't mention borders at all. God didn't use border control to separate the rebels. He used the dividing of their language. Now surely the folks who quickly realized they could understand each other gravitated into groups which became nations, eventually with observable geographical boundaries, but the boundaries didn't split them. If I shared Miracle's eschatological concern to keep the nations from working together, I would advocate for monolingualism in every nation. Every nation gets one language and you're not allowed to learn another one. I might declare it sinful, not to have open borders, but to seek to understand what people in another nation are saying. All of this learning of different languages, that's where the globalist danger really lies. That's the reversal of Babel. In both cases, Fallon and Miracle, their moral inferences regarding borders and immigration are simply not supported in the text. Closed borders neither ensure national sovereignty ask east germany during the cold war nor do they form some bulwark against the villains of a coming tribulation the next very well-worn illegitimate inference that many closed borders folks have drawn concerns city walls the argument goes like this jerusalem had a wall they used it to keep people out heck even heaven is pictured with a wall Never mind that Heaven's Wall had 12 gates that were always open and a loud invitation from the Spirit and the Bride saying, Come. So, since Jerusalem kept people out with the wall, therefore, border control. Of course, this argument falls apart with the simple realization that city walls and national borders are not the same thing. In fact, the walls around Jerusalem coexisted with national borders of Israel, so you can't conflate them. They existed separately, at the same time, with completely different purposes. Walls can't mean border control now, when they never meant that back then. I mean, the nation of Israel had no border control at the time that it had walls around some of its cities. So, axiomatically, city walls cannot imply closed national borders, since they never did. And the wall around Jerusalem was obviously never meant to limit foot traffic into or out of the nation of Israel. The other problem with drawing immigration inferences from the existence of city walls within Israel is this obvious one. And that is that not all of Israel's cities had walls. So, begging for some consistency here. How can you make inferences from the historical fact of city walls, but then ignore the parallel phenomena of the absence of those walls? I mean, if city walls impact the topic of immigration, shouldn't the absence of city walls also impact it? I think you see the problem there. Okay, so that's all I have for you guys. Just a reminder that in our attempt to apply the Word of God to present circumstances, not every argument made from the text of Scripture is of equal weight. The clear moral commands are clear for a reason. They're the ones we ought to seek to apply. Thanks for listening. Hit me up as the cool kids say these days on Facebook. God bless.
0: Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.